Good morning. The reading this morning is taken from Acts chapter 12, and I'm reading from verses 1 to 19. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many of the people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea 
and stayed there. This is the word of God. Things didn't turn out too well for those guards, did it? <laughs> well, today's message draws our Peter the Apostle series to an end. It seems an appropriate place to finish up because apart from a brief appearance at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, Peter virtually walks off the pages of Acts and makes room for the Apostle Paul and his various missionary journeys, which will now take centre stage in Acts. We've seen Peter come a long way from his fishing days, haven't we? Peter's journey from being a disciple to an apostle, a follower to a leader, has been one of trials, triumphs and incredible growth. The fruit of Peter's maturity is most clearly evidenced in his twin letters written to the church, 1st and 2nd Peter. I read through both of those letters early this morning and it's fascinating to read those letters in the light of all that we've studied and learnt about Peter. It's fascinating and it's... Peter is, is very clearly a seasoned devoted, uncompromising follower of the Lord. And his writings continue to lead and instruct believers like you and I today. So yes, we are speaking about a historical figure, but a historical figure that continues to minister and lead God's people today. Wow. As you might recall, earlier from our series, when Jesus first called Peter to follow him, this was the Peter that Jesus saw. He saw the Peter who had matured. He saw the Peter who would grow, who would learn. He saw the Peter who would boldly proclaim the life-changing message of Jesus. He saw the Peter that would heal. He saw the Peter that would write these two amazing letters to God's church. He saw him not for who he was, but for who he would become. He saw him as someone who would be an example to follow, a leader worthy to carry the title apostle. And as we draw this series to a close, I want to remind you of that truth again, that God sees us not for who we are, but for who we will and are becoming in Christ. This is a wonderful truth to take hold of, and I think it's one of the crowning lessons from our study in Peter's life, that God sees us not just for who we are, but for who we will and are becoming in Christ. I feel like I've got a long way to go as a believer. How about you? Isn't it awesome to think that God doesn't see us just where we are now, but He sees the finished product in Christ? That's who God sees when He looks at you and I. That's who He saw when He called Peter. How encouraging is that? 
for those who feel as though our faith is weak, for those who feel as though we don't pray enough, for those who feel we don't read the Scriptures enough, for those who feel we don't serve enough, for those who class ourselves as, I'm not a good Christian, God doesn't see you that way. So I invite you to try to see yourself as God sees you. God sees the finished product in Christ. And live in that space. That's a wide open space to experience the goodness and the grace of God, is it not? Practice your faith in that space. Don't practice your faith in the space of belittling yourself because that's not the way God sees you. The book of Acts is full of miracles. Imagine waking up to a miracle having an angel as your alarm clock. Well, that's what happened to Peter when he was in prison for the third time waiting trial and certain death. Let's explore some details of Acts 12, 1 to 19 and see what God might be saying to us today. The initial character mentioned in Acts 12 is King Herod. And this is, in fact, the first time we encounter Herod in Acts. This evil man was the grandson of Herod the Great, who ordered the Bethlehem children to be murdered. And he was also the nephew of Herod Antipas, who had John the Baptist beheaded. Understandably, the Jewish people resented this murderous dynasty of kings. Now, this particular Herod that we're speaking about in Acts 12, his grandmother was Jewish. So he had Jewish blood in himself as well. And he wanted to earn the favour of the Jewish people. And with the rise and spread of Christianity, he saw an opportunity. He persecuted the young church to convince the Jewish people of his allegiance to their forebears. You have to understand that at this point in time, there is the Jewish church. The church that was alive and, and, and thriving, I guess, through Jesus' ministry. And, and Jesus came as the promised Messiah. But not everyone accepted or believed that he was the promised Messiah. This is still the case today for many Jewish people. Now, the birth of the new church had its roots and origins in the Jewish church. And many of these people were Jews themselves who had come to accept that Jesus was the promised Messiah. We kind of had this dual situation where we had the original church, if you like, and then we had the breakaway church called Christianity. And these people accepted that Jesus was Messiah. And their message was that Jesus was indeed the promised Messiah. And so many of the apostles used the Old Testament to prove and to demonstrate that Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies about the Messiah. But there was great tension because there were many Jews who did not accept that Jesus was God. That's why they put him on a cross. Because he was a blasphemer. He, he said that he was God. And so do you understand the situation? This is the dynamic into which we find ourselves here in Acts 12. And so Herod, knowing 
this dynamic that exists saw an opportunity to please the Jewish people. They were by all means the majority at this point. Christianity was growing exponentially, but it was still a minority group. Herod viewed this Christian movement as a political threat because this movement claimed that Jesus was the true king of the Jews. Whereas this group over here still accepted and submitted to the fact that Herod was the king of the Jews. And so clearly this group here was a threat to that group there and a threat to the political leader of this group. Does that make sense? Now, Herod viewing this political movement as a threat had several believers arrested and imprisoned. And among them was James, the brother of John, whom he had beheaded. And this made James the first of the 12 apostles to be martyred. Stephen was martyred earlier, but he was not one of the 12 Now, verse 3 indicates that this move pleased the Jews. So just imagine how delighted they would be if the same fate fell upon Peter, the primary leader of this new Christian movement. Herod will, however, by no means have the last say. His power is short-lived and God soon justly dealt with him. Whilst Herod winds up dead and powerless, the final verse of chapter 12, verse 24, is very telling. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Nothing was going to keep God's word. Nothing was going to stop this movement of God founded in Jesus, led by Peter. It was well and truly on the move. Now, in the Jewish world of first century, they were pretty short on boys' names. So, in case you were wondering, there are two Jameses mentioned in these 19 verses, and it can be a little confusing. I certainly found it so initially. Uh, So, the James, who the writer Luke speaks of being beheaded, is different to the James that Peter will speak of later in verse 12. The James that was beheaded was James, the brother of John. You might recall when Jesus first called Peter, he firstly called James and John the brothers or the sons of Zebedee, right? So that is that James. He is one of the 12. The James to which Peter tells the other, the church, to go and tell the news that he'd been released was James, the brother of of Jesus. That James, in fact, goes on to become a prominent leader, some say taking the place of Peter after this incident. And it is this James, the brother of Jesus, whom wrote a letter that we now have in our New Testaments today. There's another James follower of Jesus called the son of Alphaeus. We don't need to worry too much about him. But now you know the James that we're speaking about. And whilst the text doesn't dwell on this detail, it says it very matter-of-factly 
The death of James, John's brother, would have been a tragic blow to the church, and I'm sure they mourned his loss. And the thought of losing Peter, having just lost James, obviously fueled their passion for prayer. Luke mentions twice that this was all happening around Passover time. How many years had passed since the Passover Jesus was crucified on and this particular moment in time? We don't know. But the timing is important. And Luke mentions it, as I said, twice. And that's a clue to us that the timing of of all of this is significant. Passover was a time when the Jewish people marked and remembered that God had delivered them from slavery. On this particular Passover, one of God's leaders would be delivered. Another one wouldn't be. Now, verse 5 presents a great contrast. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The word translated earnestly literally means stretched out. It gives the impression of wholehearted, kind of urgent pleading to God. While Peter was fast asleep in prison in the middle of the night, the church was stretched out, engaged in vigilant prayer for him. Now, Peter's future was not looking good. Herod's execution of James bought the approval and the praise for the Jewish people. Peter's fate was therefore looking to go down the same line. Peter was in prison awaiting a public trial and there was no chance of him escaping by natural means. He was not only bound to two guards, but the entry was also guarded. This was first century maximum security at its best. There was nothing the church could do to secure Peter's freedom. There was no option for bail. And any efforts on their part to petition Peter's release would have jeopardised their own individual safety and freedom. Herod wanted this Christian movement squashed promptly. So what does the church do when there is nothing they can do? They pray. And as we will come to see, prayer is the most important and powerful thing that they could have done. And remarkably, their prayers are answered. Peter was enabled by an angel to escape from prison. I just love the response of Peter and the church over his release. I think it reveals how very human they all were. No different from you and I. Peter was initially convinced that he was experiencing a vision. His first instinct was not to presume that God had rescued him. And the church, there they were, in fervent prayer for Peter's release or escape. But when he unexpectedly arrives, knocking at their door, they don't believe it. You're out of your mind, they say to Rhoda. 
The details of this door-knocking incident add so much authenticity to the text, I think. You can just picture, can't you, in your mind's eye, this scene. You can picture Rhoda going to open the door and upon hearing Peter's voice, in a state of utter surprise and amazement, going back to tell the church, to tell the people that Peter is outside. And here they are, quabbling over whether or not it is Peter or whether it is Peter's angel or whether she is just crazy and and hearing voices in her head. And the whole time, Peter's there knocking. And then eventually, they open the door and and you can just imagine, can you? You just picture it. There's probably an uproar, joy and excitement and elation. And you just imagine Peter going, quiet down. Like, my life is at stake here. We don't want to make too much of a commotion. And the text indicates that he was only with them for a very short moment of time before he took off. We don't know where. (laughs) But even just reading this text, there's so much authenticity. It's so real. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the Bible is trustworthy. This, in, this incident is such a sober reminder of the power of prayer, isn't it? <laughs> a praying church is a powerful church of great influence. There is much we can do as a church, but unless it is firmly undergirded and supported by earnest prayer, then it will amount to very little from an eternal perspective. It is not our good works or deeds that change people's hearts and situations. It is nothing other than the work of God's Holy Spirit, and in this case, an angel sent by God to do his work. Let us never forget, as Ephesians 6.12 reminds us, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. Lord, give us eyes to see things as they really are in your kingdom and help us to act accordingly. In a spiritual sense, prayer is the real work of ministry because by its very nature, it assumes that God is in control. And it assumes that God can act to alter situations, people's hearts, people's destinies. Now, this is not to suggest that all we do is pray. Rather, it is stating that all we do ought to be birthed out of prayer. For all the various ministries we are involved with, how much effort and time goes into administration, organisation, advertising, strategising, in contrast to how much prayer we give ourselves to? The fact that the early church was given to prayer 
says a lot about their high value of prayer, doesn't it? Perhaps at times we need to adjust the ledger. A church that is earnest in prayer is a church that earnestly trusts in God. And a church that earnestly trusts in God is a church God will bless and use for His kingdom purposes. I really want to thank those who lead prayer ministry here at ECBC and encourage us to pray. I want to thank Sarah. I want to thank Nigel and Carol. And I want to thank Ray. I want to encourage you to keep going, keep reminding us, keep urging us, inspiring us, encouraging us to pray. Keep inviting us to pray. Never stop. When only one person turns up to your pre-service prayer meeting, Ray, keep going, man. You know, Sarah, when 10 people turn up to the upper room or 50 people turn up to the upper room, just keep going. Keep praying. When it feels as though you're sending emails into oblivion, Nigel, just keep sending them, man. Keep them coming. Keep reminding us we need each other in the body of Christ, don't we? God has wired and gifted each of us differently and we have different passions. I mean, I look at Ross and I think of his passion for social justice and the impact and the influence that's having on this congregation. Remove this man from this congregation and and things would look different around here. The church is not all about one or two pastors. It's the body. The role of the pastors is to equip and encourage and spur the believers on. So if you're the kind of person that just looks to the pastor, can I invite you to turn around and look at your brothers and sisters? Because we are all called to minister to one another in Christ. So do I want to be championing this church towards prayer? You bet I do. But I also want to be standing with those who God has gifted and called to lead his people in prayer. And I want to raise those people up and see them become all that they can be in Christ. As for each of you, each of you has gifts and passions and God has placed things in your heart that if you're not exercising at the moment, the church is actually missing out. I want to be somebody, as I know Terry does as well, who activates people, who activates ministry. Particularly when it is ministry that is for a season and a time and aligns with God's heart for what he wants to do with his church at a particular time. Angels. This sermon's a little bit like a garden salad. We're just enjoying the variety of the meal. Does that make sense? So when I look at this text, there's Herod, there's the beheading of James, there's angels, there's miracles, there's humorous scenes, there's all of these different things going on. So the way that this sermon has just kind of come together is just kind of spending a moment here and maybe it's just a really small piece of carrot 
And then we move over here and there's like a whole tomato, like prayer, and we just pay some more attention to that. And then we sort of move on to the cucumber or whatever it might be. That's the way we're approaching this. So we've just gone from prayer and we're now moving to angels. So it'll just be a small piece of salad, but nonetheless, it's there. It's, it's, it has its place. So angels have a prominent role in acts, directing people, helping people in times of trouble, or acting as agents of judgment. The fact that the Christians inside the prayer meeting said that the person at the door must have been Peter's angel reflects the Jewish belief in guardian angels. Now, this is not the time to develop a doctrine about guardian angels, but given its place in today's reading, it certainly deserves a mention. And the fact that one of the key, or the key leader in the early church has a guardian angel, or at least there's a belief that he has a guardian angel, is a a really interesting thing to note. As the author of Hebrews writes in 1.14, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? One of the commentators wrote, I used to think that angels were kind of just for kids and Christmas. But when I really studied this text, I came to see that if Peter, the leader of the church, and the believers had a belief in guardian angels, then maybe this is something I needed to pay some more attention to. I'll just leave that with you. Now, there's a real temptation in this text to focus on Peter's miraculous escape in answer to the church at prayer and preach that in order for God to do the miraculous, we just need to pray more. And when I first read this passage, I thought that's where this sermon would head. We can always pray more, and this by no means undermines the legitimate emphasis on prayer. However, the death of James indicates that God will not always answer our prayers the way that we want. For example, why was Peter released from prison and James not spared the sword? Were not both men faithful and obedient followers of God? Could it have been that God still had more for Peter to do? Surely there was still more that James could have done had his life not been cut short. The sobering reality is we just don't know. And it's not for us to know. Luke, the author of this text, doesn't dwell on it. He doesn't give it any airtime. It's just there. Now, one commentator writes, the fact that Luke has placed these two events side by side suggests that the two ways in which God's sovereignty is expressed, physical rescue and no physical rescue, should both be considered when thinking that about God's help in times of trouble. It's an interesting reflection, isn't it? The fact that James' life tragically ended didn't cause the church to question God's wisdom. If anything, they pressed more into God and trusted Him. Just as the disciples earnestly prayed for Peter's release, we too have the freedom to pray earnestly for physical deliverance, for emotional deliverance, 
from deliverance from all kinds of things that may hold us down. But we must leave it to God to let His sovereignty over a situation be expressed in a way that He sees as best. What is most important is that, like James and Peter, we focus on remaining faithful and obedient to God's call on our lives. We don't understand the ways of God. This doesn't by any way mean that He is not in control. He is. The test for us is to trust His infinite wisdom and sovereign nature. Now, this, in fact, is a theme that biblical writers were particularly keen to stress to God's people. And I want to conclude with three verses that I think exemplify this biblical theme or thread, that God is in control, that God is sovereign, that at times we don't always understand His ways, but as Sarah concluded her prayer this morning so beautifully, He is good. And his ways are always good. Isaiah 55, 8 to 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. James 1, 2 to 5. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. And finally, Philippians 4 4 to 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. May God Bless his word to the hearts of his people.